welcome to another episode of Who Would Have Thoughts. Okay, look, I'm really excited about today's guest. I actually met her years ago in Bristol when I was an intern at ESPN, and she's just been a huge inspiration to me in this industry. So it's just really been great to watch her platform and her career truly go through a major glow up in every way, shape, or form. And this woman at this point needs no major introduction. My guest is none other than ESPN's Jamel Hill. Now, Jamel, she's a household name at this point. She previously co-hosted ESPN Sports Center at six, and now she's moved over to the undefeated. But 2017 was a crazy year for her. We all know the story by now. She captured the White House's attention with a series of tweets that blew up and hate her or love her, Jamel has essentially defined the phrase for the culture with her work commentary and just the way she unapologetically carries herself. I'm just honored to have her on the show. So without further ado, here's Jamel Hill. Thanks for, uh, you know, chatting with me. Um, so I'll jump pretty much right in because I don't want to keep uh, keep you too busy. But um, yeah, I just really appreciate it. And, you know, I know we met years ago at ESPN back when I was an intern. And you yeah. let me have lunch with you in the cafeteria. I'm sure I asked you a lot of questions, too many questions and got advice. So I've always just appreciated that. You've been somebody that, you know, has just been really helpful in this industry, which is not something you see a lot, too. Yeah, no, no problem at all. And I'm sure you didn't ask me too many questions because there's no, there's no such thing. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. I just want to jump right into just the chat. And it's kind of been a wild last year for you. Um, and I'll start first just with the Sports Center. And, you know, you left the show in February um, and you did that. I know there's been a lot of people saying, oh, she was booted off. But no, you know, you came out and said, no, that was my decision. What went into that decision for you? Well, look, I, I realize that to a lot of people, it seems strange because, um, you know, it's considered, as you know, like one of the best jobs you can ever have in sports media. But, um, you know, really, I just, I wasn't happy and um, I wanted to kind of return to what originally I started as, which was a writer. And that was, even when ESPN first hired me, they hired me to write um, as a columnist. And so I kind of felt like, from a commentary standpoint, being on SportsCenter, I was I was missing out. So I made the decision, um, you know, to leave. And uh, ESPN probably doesn't get enough credit for the fact that they actually let me do this because, I mean, they didn't have to. They could have easily just said, like, no, you got to continue doing this. And... Yeah, because contractually, they totally could have done that. But they decided that, um, you know, it it just kind of didn't make a lot of sense to force me to do something that I really, where my heart really wasn't in it. When did you start to feel like you weren't in it anymore? Like, what was there like a certain point or a moment? Um, It wasn't a moment. I think it was a collection of moments. um, And it kind of started even – it started – after the the quote controversy, but it wasn't related to the controversy, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, you know, I mean, the the direction of our show was was changing. And, um, you know, I I think when Mike and I both decided to make the Jump to Sports Center, it was with the understanding that we would uh, be able to, you know, do the show a certain way. And they were kind of moving away from the way that we thought we could do the show. And it wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with us. It was just, it was a change in leadership. And I think 
that they thought that this should have been, um, that sports center should be done a particular way. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that legacy show, but as viewers, we got to see this side of ESPN on a show like this that we didn't see. I mean, you guys were interviewing people like Michael B. Jordan on there. You were remaking skits from shows like A Different World. I mean, it was really cool. It was very, like, culturally, you know, exciting to certain people that maybe have been ignored. Um, and so when did, I guess, management, when you guys were doing that, before that change kind of put in place, when did they realize, like, okay, we really have something with these two here. Like, we have something special well, I think they always felt that way. They always felt that they did have something special, but, you know, SportsCenter is a legacy brand. There is, as much as we try to kind of do things in a different way, I mean, the truth of the matter is that the SportsCenter has been trained to think of SportsCenter a certain way, and it's kind of hard to get them out of that. And that's not to blame the viewer for the reason that we were unhappy because that wasn't the case. It was one of those things where people have an expectation when they turn on SportsCenter. And that expectation is highlights, analysis. It is what they've always come to expect from SportsCenter. And so I think um, we were we were a three, well, not a 360, it'd be a 180-degree term from what they were kind of used to. And um, I think that, you know, people that are have big titles and have known SportsCenter longer than me, they understood not that it was no connection with the viewer because I mean, the few, I mean, we did focus groups, the feedback and focus groups was always really good. But one thing that kind of came up in some of those focus groups were, Oh, we like Mike and Jamel, but we don't necessarily like, we want a certain kind of sports center. So it just, it was a very push pull effect. Now, yeah, they could have voted out and um, just said like, Hey, people just have to learn to like it. And, um, you know, could have continued on with, I think, the reasons we started to do the show and wanted to do the show. But I, I think it just, for them, it was just kind of apparent that regardless of the things that we did and they liked that we did, that there was going to be a certain amount of uh, uh, pushback from the viewer from that and not pushback in terms of ratings because the ratings were kind of consistently the same. And 6 p.m. has always been a trouble spot, but it's just, um, yeah, I mean, it is, it is sometimes you're, you're, when you're in this business, it is hard to teach your old dog a new trick, even if it's probably better off. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever feel, I mean, as, as black women in this industry, did you ever feel like it was when they were saying this, you know, this is what we want from that, that it was, you know, we don't want two black front facing hosts on one of ESPN's biggest shows. No, I never took it personally, and they, they never said that. They never were just like, oh, we don't want you guys, or whatever. They're like, we want you guys, but we think this is the direction that, that this show should go. And, um, you know, Mike and I, were we understood their position. We didn't necessarily agree with it, but uh, I don't think it was it had anything to do with, with our race. I mean, I think it had a lot to do with um, just culturally where SportsCenter is. And, uh, you know, the business of sports center is to serve the sports fans. And it, it took, it wasn't things that I didn't, you know, sort of recognize or understand myself because there were plenty of times. I remember this was guy during the finals and he kind of did the same thing. It was a, like, I didn't know this person. He was a regular viewer. And he was just like, yeah, I really love you guys. I love you and the I love the chemistry. But when I turn into six, I want this. And we're like, but as I, 
you know, was going back and forth with them and trying to understand, like, I get that you want that, but you do understand that, you know, there's these things called cell phones. And, like, a lot of the things that you want, people have seen all day. So I don't know what to tell you. Like, one of the things that people would often say to us and, and is that, oh, I want to see highlights. Highlights of what? At 6 o'clock. What do you, what do you want to see? Like, there's nothing to show you. Everything that we can show you is from last night, so you just want to see it again? Because they're used to sports center being that. And, again, I, I mean, there are certainly creative ways that we try to, you know, show more video and that kind of stuff. And so this idea that we were not highlight-driven is true. We weren't highlight-driven because we couldn't be. We were video-driven, absolutely, because that made a lot more sense. So, um, yeah, so anyway, it's just it's just a weird weird tug that goes along with being, you know, in that time slot. And uh, there are certain challenges that you face that you don't face in other time slots. And uh, that was just the reality of doing television. Now, I, I, not necessarily internally, but externally. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think there were some people who just were never going to be in our two black hosts because, um, you know, we were kind of the first sports center you know, we're not the first two black people to host Sports Center, but the first first Sports Center team, if you will, that was that was black. So um, there are some people who are going to be out on that. I definitely think some of the criticism that we received externally was racially driven, but um, it kind of is what it is. I mean, that's just would be a tough thing to to deal with too, because it's like you're doing the best you can. You're doing a product that. You know, you're enjoying that you enjoy putting on, but I, I'm I'm curious, what was just like that last episode like for you? Um, the last episode was kind of surreal because it was all I had known. I mean, well, I guess fast forwarding or or to backtrack beyond just the last episode, you know, realized that this was five years of Mike and I doing television together. And, you know, he's one of my best friends. And so that last day, I told him, I was like, dude, I'm even my pride in the show. He's like, you're not going to cry. And I was like, no, I, I think I might cry. <laughs> and he was like, and he was just like, I know you, you're not going to cry. He was right. I did. It felt like I was just moving on to the next chapter of my life. Um, and it was a little surreal to know that, you know, come, because I think I was, I'm pretty sure I left on a Friday. It just felt weird to know that Monday, yeah, I wasn't going to be coming to campus. And it was still, you know, I was going to come to campus. I was going to be put together a show. So it was very odd. Um, just from a routine standpoint is that, uh, you know, my life is about to be completely different. And, you know, that night, uh, a bunch of the staff, we all got together and went out and, um, you know, sort of set our goodbyes. And uh, the thing that was probably the most weird about it is, is that, at least for Mike and I, it didn't feel like a goodbye. It felt more like a see you later. Mm -hmm. And he recently left the show too. I mean, and you mentioned just working with him for so long. I, in my opinion, you guys have some of the best chemistry just on sports TV. It's really fun to watch. I know plenty of people have probably asked you, but are there plans of you guys maybe collaborating again in the future on ESPN? Maybe another his and hers type of type of reboot sort of deal? <laughs> Well, his and hers will not be rebooted. And, no, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I hate to tell people like that. I think that's pretty much dead. I think we will work together in the future. Um, I'm, I don't think either one of us is actually sure, like, at what capacity or when or where. We don't have a definite timetable. We certainly talked about bringing the podcast back. Mm -hmm. um, and 
you know, that's kind of a real we thing, but they're, we very much desire to work together again. And so we'll see what more that takes shape. So, so moving on now, you're, you're part of the undefeated. Um, and we've seen you, you, you lend your voice to that platform too, before you're on SE6, you know, you did the town halls, dear black athlete, what are you just like most excited to create or maybe do in this new role? Well, I, I think I'm, the, the best thing about it is that it's a blank campus. And so um, you'll see me do more undefeated TV specials, more things for them and, and on multiple ESPN platforms. Uh, I'm writing again, which I really love and am excited about. So I'm just looking forward to all of it. I'm looking forward to the opportunity to create um, whatever, you know. And so uh, sometimes it, it's the freedom is the best part you look forward to is that as great as sports center was, but as I learned in the last 13 months, is that um, in sports center, you know, you are put a bit in a box. There's certain things that you do, and that's just what the job is. And to the undefeated, it's a much more wide open. And so I'm just looking forward to having the freedom again to kind of uh, roll in the lane that I love to roll in. And and we've seen you too. Even just since then, you've been on the View. I mean, you did. You were a part of BET's panel, the Leading Women Defined event, uh, just recently. You're going to be on Kevin Garnett's show too, which that's going to be fun when you guys chop that up too. Just you've been lending your your voice, and you've been doing a lot of projects and opportunities with just a variety of different audiences. What's that experience been like? Kind of moving outside of just the sports realm and talking to you know the audience for the View is very different than the audience for you know a Sports Center. Well, that part, I think, has been very exciting. And uh, I think part of the reason, uh, one of the biggest reasons why this move made so much sense is that because everyone understood kind of the lane I was in, it made it more, and because I can't think of a, another word, it made it almost more acceptable and gave me permission to do those other things. I think it's a much harder turn for people if you go from the sports center to the view. Like, that probably wasn't going to happen. But if I'm, you know, in the lane of where I'm writing, giving my opinion, kind of labeled as an opinion is, to go on the view makes pretty sense, right? And especially uh, writing for a site that is specifically designed to um, cover the intersection between race, sports, and culture. So those entry points that were a little close to me before are now open. And... Um, it's been exciting and thrilling and because, you know, my schedule is more fluid, I'm able to go to things like leading women to find and, um, do, you know, KG shows. Uh, it's, it's exciting for me to be able to kind of take the undefeated name and brand and put them on these other platforms so that people are further exposed to the great work that we do there. Mm -hmm. What was it like being on The View? I mean, with women like Whoopi Goldberg and, and knowing that maybe you're coming into this and they're going to grill you on uncertain things. Just what was that moment like? It was um, it was actually really awesome. And uh, the day when I first, the day, the morning I showed up to do the show, I was coming off a red eye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I went right from the airport right to the show. And uh, in that circumstance, you know, you, kind of think like, oh, you're going to be super tired, but I wasn't. I was so amped to do the show. And, I, you know, having watched the show for years, I know that it's discussions where you have to defend your opinion. 
And so I was not unprepared for anything that was asked, and certainly not for anything that we asked other people, because uh, that day, if you recall, we had the Parkland students on, and we also had a Lord Metcalf. Um, I grew up watching Roseanne. I've watched Lady Bird. It was, it was you know, a, a fantastic movie. So, um, so, yeah, it was the opportunity to sit at these tables with these women who are thought leaders and provocative and, and thoughtful and sensitive. It was, you know, I really felt uh, in my element. And it, it, my mother watches a lot of things that I'm on, but she was like essentially live texting me throughout the whole show, which she never <laughs> does. Because she was just like, oh, that was a good point. Oh, I didn't disagree. I disagree with what she said. Or I disagree with I'm like, she's like live texting me. Like, I'm not on the show. Like, I'm here listening to this. And she was like, it's all Whoopi Goldberg. I'm a really big fan. And so Whoopi and I took a selfie and sent it to my mom. And she was like, through the moon about it. So it was, uh, yeah, the reach of that show is, uh, you know what it is. But it's even more incredible than you think when you, when you, when you do it. Yeah, too. And I watched that episode. And like you said, I mean, you had the, you know, the kids that that part of that Parkland shooting, I mean, unfortunately, and they've been using their voices. I mean, we just saw recently March for Our Lives um, on Saturday. And just how how impressive, honestly, that these young people have been. I mean, we saw Martin Luther King Jr.'s granddaughter speak at that rally. Um, it, it's just been really impressive. And the response to it finally seems like it's moving the needle on that conversation. And I know you've, you know, you've tweeted about it. We, you even retweeted Greg Popovich's response to it, which I thought was really interesting when he talked about just TV, them having TV at their disposal to amplify their message. And like you mentioned, just that intersection, like something like this, maybe 10, 15 years ago, major sports leagues would have never talked about. But the NBA, as we've seen, I think has been a league that's kind of been on the forefront, too, of being ahead of the curve, especially when it comes to, like, social issues. Yeah, I mean, you not only had great problems talking about it, Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union, they donated money um, to the March for Our Lives campaign. Carmelo Anthony sent over 4,000 students uh, to the rally. So there was the sports guys were all over the place. They were right there. And, I, I, yeah, I'm like you, I'm, I'm extremely impressed by the fact that they seem very prepared for this moment. And, um, of course, all of us hate the fact that it had to come out of something that was horrific and tragic, something we could never, ever imagine. But, nevertheless, I, they were chosen for a reason. And, as you said, I, I think in so many of these conversations we've had about gun control over the years, they've always wound up kind of being stuck in a certain place. But this is the first time that I can recall, frankly, in my lifetime, where it has made people listen and resonate in a completely different way. It's been brought up before, and I think it, it bears repeating. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that in some of these previous school shootings that we've had, either the victims weren't alive to tell the story, or the fact that most of them having experienced something so traumatic, understandably, have kind of, you know, gone, not necessarily into hiding, but they've disappeared from the, the, the forefront of the conversation, and understandably so, given what they, they witnessed and experienced. So this is the first time where the victims have kind of fought back against the system and said, no, we're not going to go away. We're not going to become the latest edition of Thoughts and Prayers. We're going to use this moment to amplify 
and move a conversation that needs to move. And for that, I think they are brave, they're inspiring, they're encouraging. Um, I don't even think in this moment they realize what they're doing, which is almost thing that even makes it even cooler. Mm-hmm. And and I want to go back to just that point of like now getting athlete support. I mean, LeBron, I think, is a great example, too, just and even how he's evolved in his voice. And I know last year I was talking to a professional soccer player and he had started a campaign um, and he was saying, you know, we used to maybe feel scared to voice our opinions or or to actually be ourselves but now like we feel like we have to do that like we have a platform and it'd be kind of irresponsible not to use it I mean this shift in athletes using their platform so to speak I I guess for you what's it been like as someone that's covered it seeing it evolve through your time as a journalist so when I first got into the business as a professional um the athlete of the moment, the most important athlete, was Michael Jordan. And I do think what happens is when you see things like this evolve in sports, it's usually because it takes on the tone of whoever is the most important athlete at the time. Mm-hmm. And so um, as a result, I think Michael Jordan, he had a different mechanism and model he was following. His mechanism was, okay, let me make everybody being the branding, he was the NBA's first global athlete. And so his whole thing was like global positioning, branding, marketing, be like Mike. Like, and he taught athletes how to make money. I mean, in many respects, like outside of just your contract and like what endorsements, the power of them and that kind of thing. And he was also purposely apolitical. And he also taught them, hey, don't say anything that's going to mess up your, potentially mess up your money. And they all follow that. But now you look at who is the, the biggest athlete of today? It's LeBron James. And LeBron James isn't that athlete. He's learned and figured out the balance of doing both. Where he's going to be a billion-dollar athlete. He's going to make a lot of money. And he is committed to his branding and his marketing. But he's also committed to being a voice and to speaking up. Who's the 1A most important athlete right now? Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. And so between the two of them, they have pushed athletes into a um into feeling that responsibility they didn't do it on purpose i mean they weren't saying like hey you guys gotta follow me but nevertheless i think athletes have decided to follow them mm-hmm. and, and so as a yeah and so as a result now whereas i think previous athletes felt like they were afraid and they should move use their voice and now they're like well if lebron is doing it like what's my excuse he has a lot more to lose than i do <laughs> so, <laughs> and so i think that they have found a safe space for them to, you know, commit to these ideals. And I think you're even seeing, too, that shift of, like, public support. Like you mentioned Colin Kaepernick. Recently you saw Johnny Manziel tweeting all these things, like, about Colin Kaepernick and what he's been doing. Um, And he did that very publicly. And, you know, he's trying to get back his return into the league first. And the NFL has been something with the owners. I think there's kind of that contention, too, in terms of, like, you know, you got to buckle up and get in line and and things like that. So I'm curious your thoughts on on this question. Who do you think will be back in the league first, Colin Kaepernick or Johnny Manziel? Oh, Johnny Manziel. And I I hate to say this, um, because I know how much in football means to, I, and I, look, I don't even say that fully confident Johnny Manziel will be back in the league, but you just asked me between the two, and I would say him. 
Um, look, I, it gives me no pleasure to say this because I know that football is important to Colin. He's really good at it. And, um, uh, but I don't think he, he's never going to play in the NFL again. And I knew that probably for me, the moment that was the reality is when the president at a rally, you know, talked about him. And if there was ever any slightest bit of hope or any glimmer that he would be back in the league, it was killed in that moment. And, um, I just don't think the owners are going to do it. I think that um, they have pretty much set in stone how they feel about it. And when people say collusion, people have to understand that I, no one is suggesting that all the owners of the National Football League all got in a room and said, you know what we're not going to do is let Colin Kaepernick back in the league. Sometimes there are things that don't need to be said, said that are understood. And I think it was understood nobody was going to give him a chance. So um, it kind of is what it is. But in a way, I'm actually kind of glad because his voice is so powerful outside of the NFL, uh, even more power. All he's done is gain power. And all they keep doing is proving him right. And uh, I think if he were just a football player just in the league, uh, that there he wouldn't be in the Smithsonian. I mean, I think, Fully, he's gonna he's he's in the history book, and his his meaning to sports and to culture and to life is going to be far surpassed what he could have ever done as a quarterback. I definitely agree with you on that because I think he was the one that you know he opened this conversation of you know the whole stick to sports. You can't do that anymore, and I know even. With you, like just in your past year, I think that's been a lot of maybe where the attention has been on you. I mean, look, we all know about the tweets. I don't want to get into that, you know, drawing the White House's attention. So even just from everything you've experienced with that, I want to ask you about just did that reshape just your view of like social media or Twitter and how you even like altered how you use those platforms now? Um, it didn't alter my personality at all it didn't alter um you know how i see the world but it did it broadened my platform and so now i try to be more strategic about what i say i don't change what i say mm -hmm. it's just being more strategic because i realized the reach is much broader so um for me it was not something i ever anticipated planning for tried to do it just happened and i've talked a lot about this i guess in recent months because um i've done more speaking engagements is that you know sometimes the moment chooses you and um it chose me for whatever reason and i'm just trying to kind of navigate that the aftermath of that i don't want that to be the lead the lead sentence on my on my tombstone or on my obit <laughs> is that oh she wants to about the president and this is what happened uh, so, cause I feel like I have a lot more in me and a lot more things I want to accomplish and do. So, um, you know, it was just, uh, one of those things that life, uh, unexpected curveball I was thrown and, um, I just been trying to maximize it for the right reason. So I'm curious because, you know, you have a pin tweet, a couple of pin tweets with Barack and Michelle Obama on your Twitter. Did the former president and first lady, did they ever like reach out to you whenever all this was happening? Or is your relationship more of just a we, we drink Hennessy in the White House relationship? <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it is mostly that. But um, <laughs> they did. Uh, well, the, the, the former president, he did 
through an intermediary reach out. So, um, it's so which I appreciate it. And that was cool. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect them to come rolling, you know, to my defense or anything. Uh, I look, I'm just, I'm just trying to be in the same room with them, generally speaking, at all. The one thing I hated about being, I mean, I, I love being a leading woman defined, but it sucked because, like I said, the day after Michelle Obama talked, oh. <laughs> so, yeah, so I couldn't be there the day she was there because it would have been, you know, great to kind of reconnect with her. And they were so complimentary to both myself and Mike when we met them both times. Um, it was, you know, definitely one of the most surreal moments of my life is that, uh, you know, they. I mean, the president, I mean, he, he was a big ESPN fan. So, because it was his stress relief from, you know, being the president. So, uh, we were happy that we were able to provide them with a little bit of, of entertainment, good or bad. I can say the last two presidents know me, know, know me by name. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, did, uh, what did he say? What was his message to you? Oh, so um, the message that he sent post controversy or when we met him in person? Uh, post post controversy. Oh, it was just that that just to you know keep my head up and you know stay encouraged. I mean that was pretty much it. Like it it was nothing where he, he did he was not saying he agreed or disagreed. He just you know felt like in that moment I needed you know to know that despite all the criticism and backlash that was coming my way, that you know just to kind of hold my head up high in those moments. So I mean, with something like that. What was your method of self-care throughout all of that? Because that's just like so much to handle. Like, how do you, yeah, like how do you take care of yourself when you're going through things like this? Like, what's your self-care method? Well, I'm very fortunate because I have a lot of, you know, great family, friends, you know, a great support system around me. So, and I never went through a moment where I was down. Like, that never happened. Um, So it it was, um, I actually, I think, in retrospect, I handled it pretty good, you know, uh, and being suspended. I mean, I've got the opportunity to not just reflect, but also get to binge watch, you know, some good shows. Like, <laughs> so it was, I thought it was kind of cool. Like I, I finished, I, uh, dear white people started watching, oh, um, I think, I think I started watching Narcos too, um, <laughs> but I didn't finish it. So it was just like, uh, I, I had some time on my hands to think about, some things that you know also to kind of unplug and disconnect from the world like I was barely on I wasn't on social media during those two weeks and I thought that was a really good thing I mean it it was very cleansing not to be kind of involved in the trauma of social media every day to day and so a lot of the comments that people may have had I never even saw and even um when it was a you know period where I was being discussed quite a bit on, you know, different networks and talk shows and stuff. And I never saw any of it, really. Every now and again, um, you know, my friends would kind of mess with me about, um, you know, being, uh, having to be work because of me, like Mike Luther. He was just like, hey, just so you know, I was, I was, you know, just kind of hanging out and, and not even worrying about things. And now all of a sudden I have to go on all these talk shows to talk about you. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you for the extra work. I was like, great. <laughs> like, sorry, Mike, my bad. You know, so other, other than that, it was not, uh, it, it, I wasn't consumed by looking at what people were saying. And I think that was the biggest benefit of all. And I feel like that's like a point that so many of us want to reach where it's like, 
you know, you you are yourself and, you know, you're not caring about what haters and things like that say. And I feel like sometimes a lot of times for, for women on TV, I know I feel this, you get scared that you, you maybe only have that one chance, right? So, like, at, at what point in your career did you feel like you could just finally be yourself without, like, a fear of career repercussion or that you could just, like, speak your mind? Um, You know, it, it does. It's something that does come over time. It's not something that you automatically have because I think as you're starting off early in your career, I mean, you do and rightly should be worried about those things. You're not worried about um, your credibility and... um you know, who you want, you're establishing who you want to be as a professional. And so I have been lucky enough that I reached a point where um, I've done a lot of things, I've accomplished a lot of things, I'm pretty secure in who I am. And so it would feel alien to me to not be myself. I mean, I am what I am. So like it, love it, hate it, here it is. You know, that's just kind of where it goes. So um, I think it's very uh, a very liberating experience. And I've often told younger journalists this to ask me about, you know, television and developing who they are going to be on TV. And, uh, like, you get better at TV than you get better at being you on TV. And so, um, and that comes with repetition. That comes with rest. The more you do it, the more you will be yourself. And that's, you know, pretty much a guarantee. So, um, for me, I, I, I don't know any other way to be. So it just feels like, very natural. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's been like the hardest thing or role that you've had on TV where it's like that part, it took maybe a little bit longer to get to that point? Um, uh, I guess I was very, uh, a, a sort of a, a fortunate accident that happened for me was that I never took TV very seriously because it was not what I wanted to do. So in, in, the, in the sense of that, it wasn't like a goal of mine to be a broadcaster. Like, I always wanted to be a writer. And that was it. When I first started doing TV, the only lane I knew to rove in was to be myself because I, I, I just made the most sense. And so I didn't take it super serious. So I wasn't consumed with worrying about what I said or how other people reacted or any of those things. So from the beginning, I've been that way. And um, uh, I think it served me, you know, well, because people, um, I, I think the best compliment I, I often receive is that when people say that I, I seem like I'm authentic and I'm like, yeah, because I'm being myself. Mm -hmm. And I definitely that's my dad says too. my dad, like he's very stoic, but he was like. I love Jamel. I love Jamel. I'm like, wow, like, you know you are doing something right when you get his uh, his praise. And you guys are both Michigan State guys, so maybe that factored into it. Oh, okay. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that's part of it. Well, I, I, I do appreciate that. But it, um, yeah, I mean, as if people that know me in real life, they know that I'm the same person I am on TV as I'm in real life. It's just less cuss words. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things you mentioned is just your your foundation was as a writer. And I thought it was interesting. I think it was last year I gave a talk to um, a journalism class was on HBCU. And they were all talking about, oh, we want to be like the next Jamel. We want to be opinionists on TV. And I said, hey, you guys know she got her start here at your hometown paper, the Raleigh News and Observer. You know, she was a reporter. She has a print background. I think that's a path, too, that we're seeing maybe – you know, maybe so many people aren't trying to do that anymore. Do you think like in a decade, that's still the pathway to, you know, being in this industry? And if not, what do you think it'll be? Or do you think like these young journalists will maybe lose something by not having like that kind of foundation from the jump? 
Well, um, the thing about writing and reporting is that that's what gives you the, the credibility. I mean, I would advise this for virtually anybody is that, yeah, it's always a good idea, you know, to talk to people who are experienced, who've been in the business, just to get some insight, right? But do understand that every path, no two paths are the same. So for somebody to try to model their career after mine is a misnomer. Like you're setting yourself up for failure because what happened for me will not maybe happen for you in the same way. And I don't mean like you won't get to the place that I, I got to. What I'm saying is that like you may not even like writing like I like writing. Like I love writing. It's my first, um, it's my first love. That might not be yours. So like if it's not yours, then it makes no sense for you to follow my path. <laughs> and um, so, and not only that, like the, the media modeling has completely changed now. Like, you know, print journalism is not the only path to doing that. And, but I do think you need to do something that will give you the authority to have the opinion. It's like, you know, my, um, it's the reason why most of the people that you see on our network who are in that a similar role as mine, they were, they not only have a print background, but they always, they covered something else. That's what gave them the authority. You know, Stephen A. Smith, I mean, he was one of the best NBA beat writers in the country before he got to ESPN and he was a columnist. So he did these things to establish himself as an authority. And um, so, yeah, like that's what it takes. I mean, is that you have to, you know, Max Kellerman, you know, his, his, his broadcast partner, Max, he covered boxing for years. That's what gave him the authority. So you can, there's a lot of people on TV with opinions, but the, what makes you buy into those opinions and what sells in the TV people is they have credibility. So, my advice is always seek the credibility first. The rest will come later. All right. I mean, you, anybody could give an opinion, but like you have to give people a reason why they should consider that opinion legitimate. Mm -hmm. And it's like hard that patience too, where you're just, you know, in your twenties and you're like, Oh my gosh, I need all these things. Why aren't they happening for me <laughs> to be patient? <laughs> um, and you yeah, eventually it'll work out. It eventually it'll work out. Yeah, one would hope too, right? And and you were also a columnist too at the Orlando Sentinel, and and I think it's it's interesting too. Rochelle Riley who's at the Detroit Free Press. You guys are co-chairs for um NABJ in Detroit this year, the conference there. I have to imagine that's a pretty big honor for you being from Detroit. Um, what does something like that mean to you? Oh, it means a lot, especially since the last time the convention was there was the year I joined NABJ. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I joined when I was in high school. Um, so, uh, I've been a member for a long time. And so for it to come full circle to be back in Detroit, it's, it's pretty amazing. And, uh, the city has changed a lot in 26 years. And so I really think people will, uh, get a kick out of what is basically the new Detroit. And, um, uh, it's a flagship event. And as I've often told people, NABJ was a life changing decision for me joining it. And I know I would not have gotten to where I am now, you know, without the resources and, and, and benefits that come along with being a part of that organization, especially the networking. And it's, it's pretty unprecedented, the amount of networking that goes on at NSDJ. So um, to me, it's just a banner moment. And I'm just, um, I'm real excited to be co-chair and to be involved and to, and to help highlight our city for this you know, massive convention. So like, what's it like for you now when you come back home, considering just how much your platform has blossomed? Uh, it's, um, 
it's it's interesting. I haven't actually physically been home since uh, since a lot of this has happened. I'm going in June. Um, you know, you talk about life coming full cir- circle. I'm actually giving a commencement speech at my high school. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that's pretty neat. And um, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, every time, even before this happened, whenever I went back to Detroit, it was just all love because I think people in the city appreciate the fact that. I, I constantly talk about the city and talk about how the city, you know, raised me basically and all the, the things that, you know, matter to me. A lot of those values were established there because, you know, I think for so much and for so long, Detroit is always usually written about from a negative perception. And so because of that, I think people have this idea that Detroit is not only worthless as a city, but they produce worthless products. And I'm far from that. And there are many other Detroiters that are far from that. And so um, I think it's, in, it's always been important to me to tell people where I'm from so that they understand that good things do come from that city and that, and that place. Everything's not perfect. We know that. But it still produces some of the finest people in the world. So on the flip side of that, then, how do folks in the D help humble the, the legend that is now Jamel Hill? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, one, I don't walk around like I'm a legend. It's not like I, I, but I, it's not like I walk out my ID and it says legend on there. Like, I don't do that. Um, I mean, just it's part of coming from humble beginnings. I know that um, there's a certain perspective you have to have about this stuff. So. When I go back to Detroit, I go to my same old places. I ain't going nowhere new and fancy. I and mean, there's a couple of places that have opened up that I go to. But like, I, I, my favorite bar is still Sweetwater Tavern. I still go to Sweetwater Tavern every time I'm home. You know, I still like to drop in on fish bones and um, even some places. My favorite Chinese uh, joint is Golden Bowl right there on on a six mile, like right in the hood. Like, so I'm still there. <laughs> you know, so. I just don't, I don't carry myself that way. And I've given permission to all of my friends. If I ever carried myself that way, they have permission to slap the, you know, what out of me. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, it doesn't, they don't have to contain anything because there's nothing to contain. <laughs> so that, that essentially means too, that the sports task force party will be sponsored by Sweetwater Tavern. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, Sweetwater is not big enough to hold us. Or whatever. So uh, I, I'm curious as to what the venue will be um, because it has just been, you know, as you know, the task force party is like, it's, it's the party of the convention. And so um, hopefully there, I mean, I'm sure we found a big enough venue for it, but like we need something bigger than my, my little dive bar at uh, what whatever. So I want to, I want to ask you just a couple of questions just about um, like, the culture, I guess I'll put that in quotes, right? And just the the thing everyone's talking about, you've been talking about this too, Black Panther. I mean, that's a moment like you helped kids in Detroit, um, some school kids like go see the movie. What has just this film, how has it been so important? What do you think, I guess it, it signifies just on a larger scale? Um, I think it, it resonated for a lot of reasons. Um, one, uh, you have a blend of African and African American culture in this movie. Uh, two, you have, it wasn't just about the fact of what it meant visually to see, you know, people of color on this kind of platform. It was the investment too that went into it, knowing that Ryan Coogler was given probably more money to make this movie than any black filmmaker has ever been given. 
So there was an investment in him. Then you have a pretty much all black cast. So there's an investment in that. And then to be in the superhero genre, the Marvel comic genre is even bigger because now you're talking about something that's tying together one of the most important properties at Disney, you know, is Marvel. So um, that means that this was not just about a movie and what it could do domestically, but what it could do globally. And um, I think for a lot of Black people, we celebrated this moment because it showed not only um, kind of an ideal, because I've, I've said this to people, like, the reason why people are going around saying Wakanda forever is because Wakanda is an ideal for us. It's like, this is what would have happened if not for this. This is, that's what Wakanda is, all right? It's a Black people's heaven, all right? <laughs> so that's what it is, um, um, you know, for us, by us, you know? So, uh, so you have that, and I think you also have the fact that it's showing layers of, of, of Black life that we don't get to see. You know, it shows us out there kicking ass and also out there being really smart and also out there as heroes as anti-heroes, as, as it shows us the complexity of who we are. And a lot of times, movies, they don't show our complexity. They show us one way, mm-hmm. right? and that's all you get. The best movies show us in multifaceted ways. Like, probably the most beautiful film that I saw in 20, I guess, would it be 17 or 16? I think it's 16, um, was Moonlight, mm-hmm. because it showed something so complex that we don't often see about ourselves and in a way that was just beautiful. And so um, I, I think this movie is, is that, and it's an action movie, and it's just a great story. I mean, we don't have to be black to love the story. Clearly, more than black people are going to see this. Otherwise, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't have raked in a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just a great story, and as somebody who's seen every Marvel movie and grew up reading Marvel comics, uh, to see this come to life in this way was something I could have never anticipated. Yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it was, I, I don't ever see movies ever. I think I see a movie a year. And that was when I was like, okay, I'm going to see this opening weekend. Like, I have to see this. Um, and it's so I'm curious, what character do you think you were most like? Oh, um, well, I'll say the character I want to be. I wanted to be the general. I wanted, I wanted her to teach me how to fight. <laughs> you know? But she was, she was, I mean, I, I try to be that way. She was strong, but she was principled. And hell, she's about to murder her husband. <laughs> if it came to save a God, I was like, okay, I see you. Um, I, you know, between her and the PETA, I mean, I, either one of those two. Unfortunately, I hate math and science, so I couldn't be sure. So, yeah. like, <laughs> I couldn't be her because she's way too dang all smart. And, like, I'm not, that's not my aptitude. But those two uh, women, uh, both the PETA and the general, I think what made it uh, awesome to see them. And, and really, that's the other part of the movie that was uh, that people didn't understand to you saw. And it's like the women make the film. The women are the strongest mm-hmm. characters in here. And for for you know Black Panther's entire fight, fighting force to be made up of women was just ridiculous. So what this movie represented from from a racial and a gender standpoint was something we have not seen and don't often see, especially as related to you know Black life. But at any rate, so those two because. Um, I, I like to think that I'm the kind of person or I'm trying to be the kind of person that stands for something that's, that's bigger than me. Like it, it, it's not about me. It, I got to stand for something that's larger. 
Mm -hmm. And you're definitely doing that too. And you mentioned just growing up and just being like this Marvel comic book fan. We've seen big names that are writing for them now, like the Roxane Gays, the Ta-Nehisi Coates. Could that be potentially something you do now? No, I, I'm, unfortunately, I don't possess that much imagination where I can think <laughs> of a fictional world that is that is Wakanda. Um, but it, but it does speak to the layers, the depth that they're trying to bring to this um, franchise, and that it's not just going to be a story, but it's going to be a multifaceted in deep, you know, in depth rather, you know, story told from a bunch of different perspectives and it'll have complications. Part of the reason why I was ever drawn to superheroes in gen general is not because of their, their feature strength. I mean, they're impressive, don't get me wrong, but I was always drawn to the tension in their characters, you know, of having being blessed with these things, but not either knowing how to use them or being, you know, um, uh, or just having the tension of, of everything being put on you because you have them. Like that, to me, the beauty of superheroes is that they are complicated people and I love their complications. And that's what, that's what always made me a fan is that they're at the same time blessed and burdened. And I think there's just a, an amazing tension in that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, too, there's a, a young generation of journalists, too, where they, they would define you as a superhero for everything you've been doing and just the voice you've given to people and the voice you're giving to your work. So as always, appreciate it. And as always, we'll follow your work, Jamel, and thank you, too, for the time. It's been it's really been a pleasure just chatting with you today. No problem. And um, uh, it's been great to catch up with you and, and to watch you and uh, see as you're on the rise as well. So. Um, anytime. Uh, happy to have had this chat. That was ESPN's Jamel Hill. As always, if you enjoyed this chat, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. Who would have thoughts? You can do so on iTunes or SoundCloud, and you can catch even more great content like this on my website, whowouldhavethoughts.tumblr.com. Thanks so much for listening, guys. See you back here next time.